Magnificent sunset, its splendour falling on ancient castle walls and gleaming on snowy summits. A bugle sounds into twilight spaces, and back come the echoes, a wild rush of sounds at first, then slowly dying away. That's the movement entitled Nocturne, from Benjamin Britten's orchestral song cycle Serenade for Tenor, Horn and Strings. So, it's a serenade in the original sense of the word, evening music, to be sung in the open air, a romantic hymn to the beauty of night. Or is it? This is a very different image of night. It's a time of darkness in the spiritual sense, full of menace, possibly sexual menace. The invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm is destroying the crimson rose with his dark secret love. Here are two radically different, perhaps even irreconcilable images of night. And yet, not only do they turn up in the same work, they follow one another. That disturbing setting of a tiny poem by William Blake comes straight on the heels of the intoxicating magic of the Tennyson song we heard a moment or two ago. It looks as though Britain's serenade is going to be a work of contrasts, a work which takes its overview by bringing together images and emotions which don't always fit comfortably side by side. But I don't think I've ever heard the serenade for tenor, horn and strings as inconsistent, disunified, as I've already indicated, there is a pervasive theme, night, a theme which Britain came back to again and again. For Britain, night was clearly a time when things happen, a time of ferment, 
when the darker, unconscious side of the mind speaks more clearly, even if the language it uses is enigmatic, full of hints and shadows, rather than direct statements. Some song cycles tell stories. In Schubert's Die Schöne Müllerin, we follow the young wanderer as he falls in love, is disillusioned, and finally kills himself. But there are others, like Schubert's Winterreise, where the sequence of events is harder to follow. The great singer Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau has described Winterreise as circling around its central theme, viewing it from different angles and leaving the outcome in doubt. That's much more the kind of cycle Britain's serenade is, even if for a while it seems to be following a time scheme from sunset to the depth of night. As if to emphasise this circular thinking, Britain begins and ends his serenade with the same music. A horn solo, inspired by the playing of Dennis Brain, an outstandingly talented horn player who Britain had recently met. It's evocative, haunting. The sound of the solo horn has such powerful associations. Fairy tales and poetry are full of hunting horns, magic horns. We think of woodlands, and woods are traditionally magical places, worlds with a kind of twilight or nocturnal character of their own. And there's something quite primal about this music, too. Maybe you notice something strange about a few of the notes there. The passage certainly fooled a critic at the first performance, who complained about it being out of tune. I don't think many of us would have a problem with the first phrase. But what about the second note of the next phrase? top note of that phrase was really sharp, wasn't it? That's because we modern listeners are used to a kind of tuning where every major third or perfect fourth is the same as every other major third or perfect fourth. But that's a relatively recent invention. If you ask a horn player to use the natural harmonics, the notes which emerge when you play a brass instrument without valves or slides, it sounds rather different. At first, 
the notes are pretty much as we'd expect. But as the player gradually tightens his lips, the notes begin to get closer to each other. Eventually, when you get up higher, they start to sound strange. So this is a natural sound, primal, magically suggestive, but which also sounds slightly unsettling to modern, civilised ears. I'm sure that's the core effect Britain had in mind, nature in the raw, fascinating, but also discomforting, eerie. Is this a human horn player, or an inhabitant of Britain's nocturnal world of fairies and ghosts? human sounds aren't far off. The first song begins with a warm sound, strings, and within seconds the tenor voice joins in. This is a poem by the 17th century English writer Charles Cotton. The words are self-explanatory. The day's grown old, the fainting sun has but a little way to run. This does seem much warmer, more fleshly than that opening horn solo, even though Britain specifies muted strings at the start. But there's still something disturbing in there, some subtle ambiguities. At first, the strings seem to be in a fastish six in a bar, a gently rocking one, two, three, two, two, three. But when the tenor enters, he seems to be singing in a slower three. And when the horn picks up on that phrase, it stretches it out slightly, so that we now get a slow bar of four with an upbeat. The harmony is not quite clear either. The opening chord sounds like D-flat major, with the third, F, in the bass. But that bass F is also the keynote F of the horn's prologue.
so there's an uncertainty as to whether this song's actually in D-flat or in F minor. There's a slight astringency on that last chord, too, just enough to play on that sense of ambiguity. Now that hint of uncertainty stays with us right to the end of the song, even though Cotton's last words seem cosy, even innocuous. And now on benches all are sat, in the cool air to sit and chat, till Phoebus, dipping in the west, shall lead the world the way to rest. There's another rocking rhythm in the strings, but now in the lower instruments. At the same time, the horn tolls a low D-flat, the possible home key of the song, the rhythm shifting ominously. And in fact, that low repeated horn D-flat doesn't bring a sense of resolution on D-flat. Not at all. The harmony is mysterious, and it remains so right up to the final bar. Phoebus may have led the world to rest in the poem, but in the song, any rest remains elusive to the last. There's surely a hint of what's to come in that hanging conclusion, a suggestion that the coming of night doesn't bring rest for everyone. But if the pastoral ends with the shadows lengthening, the next song stands to one side and takes another view. Sunsets can be splendid. This is the final celebration of light in all its richness before night. <laughs> The bugle rings out, setting the wild echoes flying, as Tennyson puts it. At last, Britain has found some pleasure in the coming of night. Everything's so vibrant. The string's chord seems to pulsate with energy and anticipation, every instrument trilling away. 
It's the horn, not surprisingly, which gives us the sound of the bugle. At the same time, the singer's urging the bugle on, like a huntsman rallying his dogs. The bugle seems to echo the tenor's words in its ecstatic, rolling fanfares. There's such emotional depth in those dying echoes. You get the feeling that Britain and Tennyson are hinting at some deeper significance. Sure enough, that significance later becomes apparent. Oh, love, they die in yon rich sky. They faint on hill or field or river. Our echoes roll from soul to soul and grow forever and forever. Again, the bugle fanfares ring out. But did you notice there how the cellos and basses echo the voice line deep down? So this has become a duet. The singer is addressing someone he loves, someone far away perhaps, but who through the power of love, the power that makes human souls echo one another, might just be able to hear his message. That's undoubtedly the most radiantly positive song in the whole of the serenade, a hymn to the power of love, enduring when echoes die and darkness falls, which only makes the next song, Elegy, all the more disturbing. This is the Blake setting we heard at the beginning of the programme, the tiny, sinister portrait of the sick rose, its life sapped by the invisible worm. The rose, particularly the crimson rose specified by Blake, is traditionally a symbol of love. So what's the sickness which devours it? Whatever it is, it turns the joyous confidence of the previous song completely on its head. We hardly need the words. The first section, for horn and strings alone, tells us just about all we need to know.
chilling harmonies, a sparse texture. Britain was a master of conveying dark emotions. As soon as that song starts, we know we're entering nightmare territory. The string rhythm drags heavily. Underneath this, double basses fidget nervously, pizzicato. Over that, the horn line is sinuous and chromatic, serpentine, you might say, suggestive of that dreadful image of the invisible worm. This seems worlds apart from Tennyson's earlier ecstatic hymn to human love. You may think it's brave of Britain to risk putting that and the notion of dark secret love side by side, but as I said at the start, this work's full of hidden connections. Take the very first two notes of the horn's phrase, G-sharp and G-natural. Now let's hear the last two bars of the Tennyson setting. Right in the middle of that, one of the solo violins is playing this. It's the same two notes the horn starts with in the next movement. And later, when the tenor finally enters, I'm sure you can guess which two notes he begins with. Suddenly, the connection's made. That treasured love which called from soul to soul has mutated into a new ghastly form, the invisible worm whose dark secret love does thy life destroy? This is a terrifying portrayal of human love, an all-too-realistic recognition of how forbidden love can become all-consuming, even destructive. And this reinterpretation continues. At the end of the Blake setting, the horn takes the dolorous O oh, Rose motif and turns it into a sneer. 
the horn plays the same notes, G sharp, G natural, but to get that second note, G, he uses an old-fashioned technique, once again from the days before brass valves were invented. The player changes the note by pushing his hand higher up into the bell of the instrument. The sound becomes rasping, crude. So much for the idea of the purity of human love. There's something sick corrupting here too. It's a theme which bothered Britain throughout his life. Is there ever such a thing as pure innocence? Or is there always a worm in the bud? Then again, could there perhaps be purification for corrupted human nature, even if that purification is a violent, painful process? That's the issue the next song probes, a setting of an anonymous 15th century poem known as the Lykewake Dirge. Its subject is the destination of a sinful soul after death. Everlasting punishment, surely. But we're forgetting that in 15th century England there was only one recognised religion, Catholicism. And for the Orthodox Catholic, there's another possibility for the soul when it leaves the body. Purgatory, the purging of sin but by fire. sound of the tenor is quite chilling, isn't it? Again, we seem to have stepped into a new world, yet another representation of night, possibly one even darker than that before. But again a connection is made. Take that opening phrase to the words, this a night, this very night. This night. The phrase rises and falls by a semitone. And those two notes, a semitone apart, are the very notes of the O Rose motif from the Blake song. Rose. So again, these different worlds are connected. We're circling around the same musical idea. In fact, that two-note motif plays an even greater role in this song than in the previous Blake setting, because no matter how complex the instrumental writing becomes, the tenor goes on obsessively repeating his first six-bar phrase. It's the soul trying to keep to its path as the dark shapes around it become ever more menacing. Round and round comes the wailing tenor melody, like a mantra obsessively chanted over the ever-intensifying accompaniment. 
The power comes from careful pacing, instruments gradually added one by one to the texture. Cunningly, Britain keeps the horn quiet until the very climax of the song, to brig or dread thou comest at last, and then it sounds out like an alarm call. Alarm calls, fearful, frantic strings scurrying after one another, a high, wailing motif like a drone. I often wondered if there's another extra musical echo in this song. Britton wrote the serenade for tenor, horn and strings in 1943, the year after he returned to England from America, settling in London. The London of this time could be a terrifying place to live. German air bombing raids were expected all the time, Indeed, you could say that London itself was undergoing a kind of purification by fire at the time Britain wrote the serenade. Listen to that repeated tenor phrase with an air raid siren in mind. The connection seems even stronger. Soon, though, there's a welcome contrast to this disturbing representation of darkness. If we think of the song cycle in symphonic terms, it makes a kind of scherzo, a lighter interlude. This time, the poet is Shakespeare's contemporary Ben Jonson, and the mood is playful, if still nocturnal. It's a hymn to the moon, personified as the ancient Roman moon goddess Diana, queen and huntress, chaste and fair. <laughs> This hymn to the moon isn't just a welcome contrast from the deepening spiritual gloom of the previous three songs. It's also a kind of recapitulation, looking back to happier images from earlier on in the serenade. Take the horn's first theme. So quick you could almost miss it, there's a pattern of descending thirds there. The tenor leads off with a very similar pattern of intervals. Queen and Huntress. That's the same pattern of descending thirds that the bugle fanfares were based on in the Tennyson setting, Nocturne, and the tenor's falling phrases about the echoes dying. Dying, dying, dying. This memory is underlined by the strings at the climax of this new song, piles of descending thirds beckoning the return of the voice. Shining quiver, even 
So, has Britain managed to banish all unpleasant memories of the elegy and the dirge with this lively, dance-like playfulness? To read some descriptions of the serenade, you'd think he has. The final song, a setting of a sonnet by John Keats, is often described with words like serene. It's a song of praise to the soothing power of sleep. At the beginning, thick string chords, pure tonal harmonies now, an image of peace at last. The sound of those rich, divided string chords has been compared to Vaughan Williams, especially to his famous Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis. Now there is serenity in those sounds, but I'm not so sure about Britain's string chords. If you add to them what the tenor's singing, oh soft embalmer, it jars a little against the harmonies. Did you notice where the clash happens? It's on the word embalmer. Now that's not a very comforting image, is it? Sleepers bring a, not of rest, but of a kind of death. You think I'm making too much of this? Well, see what follows. At the end of the first phrase, the words make it clear what the poet is seeking from sleep. Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness divine, he calls it. Those supposedly serene string chords return, higher up on the strings this time. Then in comes the tenor. Oh, soothest sleep, if so it please thee, close the midst of this thine hymn, my willing eyes. This isn't so much a hymn to sleep as a prayer for sleep. how the strings clash with the tenor on the word sleep again. This music is drifting backwards and forwards between serenity and anxiety. What if sleep doesn't come? The tenor tells us in ironically flowery language that he must then wake the amen ere thy poppy throws around my bed its lulling charities. In other words, the poet might be reduced to falling back on opium dangerously addictive drug. Oh, 
The setting of the word lulling there is chilling. And to anyone who says it's overdone, all I can say to those critics is that they've probably never suffered from insomnia. Britain did. His next orchestral song cycle, Nocturne, is haunted by it. The dread and desperate loneliness which can come to a man who can't sleep. No wonder the word lulling is stretched out grotesquely. The next lines of the poem are even more strongly charged with anxiety. Then save me, save me, or the passed day will shine upon my pillow, breeding many woes. Save me from curious conscience that still lords its strength for darkness, burrowing like a mole. Then This is a tortured mind, and there's a clue there as to what it is that's doing the torturing. Remember that line about conscience burrowing like a mole. Burrowing like a mole. If that reminds you of the elegy with its burrowing invisible worm, that's partly because there's a musical reference here. The oscillating semitones take us straight back to that haunting movement especially to the horn's final few bars. At the end of this sonnet, Britain brings back the so-called serene string chords, but still the tenor line clashes, as well it might, Seal the hushed casket of my soul, the text reads. By casket, Keats means a coffin. Is death the only way out? Soothing? I think that's devastating. At last, Britain has brought together both the light and the dark imagery of the serenade, the glory of human love from the Tennyson Nocturne, and the horror of the worm's dark secret love. I say brought together, but he hasn't reconciled them, as it seems Britain never did in life. He was constantly tortured by a fear about his own sexuality. A lingering thought hangs in the air. For all its beauty and calm, night has a sinister side. 
It consumes the sleepless mind with inescapable troubles, that curious conscience that still lords its strength for darkness, burrowing like a mole. Whatever anyone says, the serenade is a remarkably coherent work. It's firmly held together by the images of night, ever unfolding, yielding new interpretations. And at the same time, the work thrives on its intricate network of motivic connections. As if to prove the point, there is another song that Britain might have included in the serenade, an exquisite, tender nocturne of sexual and emotional fulfilment, Now Sleeps the Crimson Petal. The scoring is the same, tenor, horn and strings. But in the end, Britain left it out. For once in his life, it was an uncomplicated love song, a celebration of sexual bliss. It seems that Britain felt the song simply wouldn't fit into the taut emotional scheme of his serenade. Well, whatever Britain's personal motivations, the return of the solo horn at the end of the serenade adds a fitting signature to it. The notes are exactly the same as at the start, but the horn's off stage, another distant voice. Its eerie calm remains, but now there's an elegiac quality too, a hint of last post perhaps. Night may be passing, but the tragic tensions which have inhabited it are unresolved. 